Good morning, Christ the King. What a privilege it is to be here with you all this morning. And I personally want to say thank you from uh, my wife and I and the core group of Christ United Fellowship for your gospel partnership through the Florida Church Planting Network. Our passage this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And while you're turning there, Peter is writing to believers during the reign of Emperor Nero who are experiencing suffering for their faith in Christ. And he encourages them by reminding them that in the same way Christ suffered and then entered into glory, they too will enter into glory after the sufferings of this life. And in our current text, he points to the resurrection of Jesus as the way through which this is already a reality for believers. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that. It will never fade. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege to assemble here as your people and be fed by you. Oh, Lord, we ask you to open the eyes of our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Open our ears. Remove the veil off of our eyes. Lord, we pray that you would grant it to us to know the depth of your love, the height of your love, the breadth of your love, and all the truth Uh, that lies in your word. Oh God, help me as your servant this morning. Empower me, and Lord, may you build up the saints. May you call the lost. But most of all, may this be done to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Forgive me for making you sit so soon. Uh, Growing up as a kid, I was a big New York Knicks basketball fan. And that was unusual for someone who grew up in Miami, but I loved the New York Knickerbockers. I would watch them anytime I could, whether it was on TBS, whether it was on Sunday morning NBC, whether it was Thursday night on TNT. I got as much Knicks action as I could. I even remember one night watching MJ, or many nights watching MJ light up the scoreboard in Madison Square Garden. Uh, Many of those games did not 
turn out in the New York Knicks' favor, but they were classics. I also remember one night loving the Knicks so much that I asked the Lord right there as I bowed on my knees in my room one night, Lord, will you make me six foot five like John Starks, the guy who dunked on Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen on the baseline? And so far, the prayers come up two and a half inches short. <laughs> but praise God. One afternoon, I was watching a playoff game with the New York Knicks. I believe it was the Indiana Pacers. And the network did a flashback to one of the greatest moments in sports history, and certainly the greatest moment in Madison Square Garden history. Some of you may have witnessed this. The New York Knicks were playing the Los Angeles Lakers in Game 7 of the NBA championship in 1970. And it was a tough matchup. The Knicks were favored to win, but they lost their big man, Willis Reed, the only one who was capable of effectively guarding Wilt Chamberlain. And all hope was lost for the New York Knicks. Uh, The fans knew it, and the players knew it. They ended up winning game five, but they lost game six, and it came back to the garden, and there was a sense of despair because their big man was not there. And then suddenly, someone resurfaces, figuratively speaking, from the dead and descends from the stadium stands down to the floor just before the game commenced. And it was none other than Willis Reed. And Madison Square Garden became overwhelmed with joy and excitement. And the cheers and applause cascaded down the stands. And the players suddenly came to life. And and the Los Angeles Lakers were standing there in bewilderment. Beholding the New York Knicks big man who was the only one capable of guarding Wilt Chamberlain. Walt Frazier, giving commentary on the game, said, I knew that if he did not play, we would not win that game. He has an ability to inspire hope in the players and to lift their spirits just by his sheer presence. Willis Reed only scored a basket that night, but his defense helped the New York Knicks go on to win that championship game. And I remember watching that highlight some 30 years after, after it happened as a 10-year-old and being inspired by the greatness of that moment. And in similar fashion, only to a greater, far greater magnitude, some 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And in similar fashion, thank you, as, and in similar fashion, as Willis Reed continues to inspire people today, The Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection still means something for us today. The Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection is not just something that happened in the far distant past. It's not this great event that happened that we celebrate once a year. It was a cosmic, universal event that had radical implications for the rest of history. And it means something for us right here this morning at Christ the King Presbyterian Church. And to that end, I want to deal with the question of what does the resurrection mean now? And I mean that as a pun. I mean that as what does it mean for us today? And I also mean, so what? What does the resurrection mean? And I want to submit to you that 
Peter offers us three things this morning from our text. Uh, Certainly the resurrection means far more than three things, but Peter says to us that because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have a present hope. Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have a protected inheritance. And finally, because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we have a proven faith. Look with me at verse verse 3, our present hope. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, as soon as we look at this series of verses, we see that that Peter starts off with a doxology. Peter starts off with a praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And why does Peter say that? He says that because we as believers have received the mercy of God instead of his justice for our sin. That is, Christ died in our place and we got the record of his work. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ died for our sin. We got God's mercy instead of God's justice. Jesus got got, got God's justice on our behalf. And I, I happened to hear a preacher on the radio the other day say that God looked down in time and saw that he would believe. And I was in the car by myself and I said, but that's not the basis of God's mercy. If anyone passing by saw me in the car, they would have thought I was a madman. Instantly, I said, if God's mercy were based on him looking down through the portals of time and seeing that we would believe, then it wouldn't be God's mercy. It would be conditional. It would be based upon something that's in and of ourselves. But Peter doesn't praise God because of us. He praises God for his mercy because God gave us something that we did not deserve. And Peter said that God caused this hope, not our own abilities or cleverness. And so I I just want to think about something here quickly. Uh, The big occasion we just celebrated uh, last week was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we certainly should celebrate that. We should celebrate it every week, as our dear brother mentioned earlier. Uh, But I, I wonder, does this mean that we simply just trust Jesus and meander through life with a morose attitude and wait and hope and hope and wait that this thing called Christianity is true And that Jesus will return and usher in our future salvation. I wonder if we, I wonder if we just should kind of wander around or just ooze around. I wonder if we should treat it as though it were just this distant event. I would say absolutely not. Because Peter says that we, by the mercy of God, have been born again. That is, we have actually been brought back from the dead, spiritually speaking, and made alive in Jesus Christ. We've been made alive. And Paul says 
in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But listen, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that is because God's mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So can dead man walk? Absolutely. Can they tell tales? Yes, they can. And Peter would have us to know that we've actually been born again that is brought back from the dead. To what? What have we been born again to? What has God made us alive to? He's made us alive to a living hope. A living hope. Make note, put note there. Peter says we've been born again to a living hope. And this is a presently active hope. That means it's right here, right now, real-time assurance or confidence that we belong to Jesus now and will be with him in his eternal kingdom. You see, it actually has implications for us this very moment. Take a breath. Your hope has implications right now. So the hope to which Peter is referring is not like our culture understands it. It is not a close your eyes, cross your fingers, and wish that fate will work out in your favor. That's not what Peter's talking about. What Peter is saying is that this is a confident assurance, literally from the Greek word, a confident assurance that God has already favorably determined your fate. You see, that's, that's a far different way of thinking about hope than how we normally think about it in the culture. And now how has this been done? Peter says through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Peter says that our new birth and living hope are a result of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Peter himself witnessed Jesus Christ's life, his suffering, his death and resurrection. He spoke to him, he dined with him, and witnessed his ascension into heaven. And he would have us understand this morning that Christ's resurrection from the dead signals to those who believe in him that in the same way we have been made alive and have an active hope, not a dead one. Is there an amen? I remember when I was growing up, one of my family members, after, after I had my conversion experience, said, so now you're, you're a born-again Christian, huh? And I said... Yes. Uh, he said in a condescending fashion, he was ridiculing me. He said, okay, how can a man be born again? I said, okay, I see where we're going with this. And we, the conversation prolonged, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, you know what religion is? You know what religion does? It just provides hope to people. That's all it does. It just provides hope for here and now. And I uh, thought, okay, that's fine. I talked to another friend who, said, who happened to be a believer, and she said to me, you know, I would rather believe now, just in case, when we get there, that they're wrong. 
And I said, listen, the hope that we have is not a wish or a desire. The fact that you believe that that longing, that's assurance, that's real, okay? It's the hope that we have, the, the hope that the Bible talks about, the hope that Peter talks about is not us standing at a wishing well, throwing a penny or a quarter in there and hoping that Jesus will come back. The hope that we have is that he will come back. You see, and let me tell you what this should do. This should serve as an encouragement to us when we are faced with secular minded folks who think that heaven is here and now. That this is all there is. The resurrection declares that there is something different. Jesus died and he rose from the dead. We died with him. Our baptism signifies this. We rose from the dead. We broke away from this world. So that means there's something greater. You see, beloved, heaven is not here right now. It's on the way. You just hang in there. So whenever you run into discouraging moments and are doubting and are wondering and sort of meandering, remember the resurrection means that Jesus rose from the dead and that our hope is alive Not only do we have a living hope, but we also have a protected inheritance. Verses 4 and 5. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When we see the word inheritance here, we are quickly reminded of the promises that God made to his, uh, to the Israelites to inherit the land of Canaan. Or if we're thinking with our earthly mindset, we're waiting on the inheritance that's to come to us from uncle, mom, or dad, or something. Or thinking about the inheritance that we already got and how we can grow the inheritance. But Peter is not talking merely about a physical or earthly possession. Look at the words that he uses to describe. He says that it is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. When he says that it is imperishable, he means that it cannot be destroyed. That's what he means. It is not subject to destruction. When he says that it is undefiled, it cannot be contaminated nor polluted by sin. When he says that it is unfading, it is not subject to the degradation of quality That comes with time. There are very few things that get better as time goes along. The rest just simply decay and fade and wither. But Peter says that our inheritance is not like the things uh, that we think of. And all these things were true for the Israelites. The Israelites... had their temple destroyed. They polluted the Holy Land with idolatrous worship. And then, of course, famine struck the land. So all those things that Peter mentioned were true for the physical promised land. But he said that the inheritance that we are to receive 
will be far greater in character. In fact, Peter says, uh, pardon me, uh, that's why I hate notes. Uh, the inheritance that is, kept, that is kept for those who trust in Christ is heavenly in character. Uh, in fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us about this future inheritance. He says in chapter 11, verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward, take note of this, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham, though he entered into the physical promised land, was looking to a greater promised land. He was looking to a heavenly promised land. Then the Hebrew writer says in verse 15 and 16, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Beloved, do you long for a city that is better than what you see here in Vero Beach? I know there are beautiful golf courses. I know there are wonderful sandy seashores and crystal clear beaches. But I came to tell you this morning that there is something far better than any vacation resort that you would ever imagine here on earth. It's a heavenly vacation resort. But I'll tell you more about that later. John in Revelation describes this city as the new creation. This, in Revelations, John says, God descended to earth to dwell with his people. So this inheritance that we await is the final realization of our salvation, where we will dwell with the Lord Jesus uninterrupted in the new creation. When the Lord told Moses, go on to the promised land, I'm not coming with you. He said, Lord, if you do not come with us, if you do not come, we don't want to go. Because he didn't want a promised land without the one who made the promise. And beloved, understand, understand this. The inheritance that we get is the one who made the promise of the inheritance. That's what we have to look forward to. More Jesus uninterrupted by sin. Not subject to the decay of time. Indestructible fellowship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I was meeting with a friend of mine recently uh, to, dis- to discuss uh, some developmental uh, strategies for our church plant. He works in the financial sector, and we were just talking, and he just out of nowhere interrupted. He said, did you see the ESPN documentary broke, 30 for 30 broke? I said, no, I didn't, but I heard about it, and I'm familiar with it. I've seen programs that are similar to that. He said, man, it is amazing how much, how much money these guys got and squandered it. Then he said, then he said, the normal individual 
their salary peaks somewhere around midlife in their 50s. He said, but these guys started out in their peak as 20-year-olds and then lost it. And then he said to me, he said, but you know, it's, it's not an ethnic thing. It's not a socioeconomic thing. He said, it's everywhere. He said, I try to talk to people on a regular basis and try to caution them ahead of time and when they get out of control with their habits. Sometimes their parents will even come in and help them to manage their assets. But then the parents get tired and give up and they squander it. But beloved, I want to tell you this morning that the inheritance that, wait, that awaits us, it's guarded even against our own folly, our own ignorance, our own foolishness. Because in this place, there's no more sin. Not even our own sin can affect this inheritance. Praise God this morning. Uh, Peter says this heavenly treasure awaits us. And he states that we are being guarded by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I want you to see that right there. Who by God's power are being guarded. That is a military term. That is as if someone were standing right here in the front of this sanctuary guarding our treasure. Armed. That is a partition, a heavenly partition has been built around your inheritance. And we are being guarded through faith, Peter says. That is, God is protecting us, and we are called to keep on trusting him. And, of course, you know that we keep trusting him because he keeps protecting us. So we can never forget that the ultimate cause of our trust is God. Uh, Two things here can stop us from getting an inheritance as we understand it. Something happening to you or something happening to it. But look at the grace of God. He protects both. Our inheritance is, re- is reserved for us in the heavenly places. And he's also protecting the ones who will get the inheritance. What does this mean for us? In life, we don't have to cling to this world. And in death, we don't have to fear that we are losing our earthly possessions Because we are gaining an eternal treasure. And we don't even have to fear death itself. Because ironically, it's the passage to our inheritance. Not only do we have a present hope, a protected inheritance. We also have a proven faith through the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice Though now for a while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What is Peter saying? In this you rejoice. He's referring to all the blessings that we have mentioned in verses 3 through 5 when he says we've been born again, the new birth, and our living hope. All this, Peter says, in this we rejoice and in our inheritance. And now he transitions to the troubles that are faced by the recipients of his encouragement. 
Peter does not specify what is troubling the, the members there at the church. But he does say that they are grieved by it. So there is something or some things that are bothering them, that are burdening them, that are weighing them down, that are causing them to grieve. And I want you to understand this morning, beloved, that people are sometimes under the illusion that once you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that suffering will no longer come your way. And let me tell you, that's a farce if ever there were one. All right? There are some people that think that just placing your trust in Christ means no more suffering. But you have to understand, that's not true. In fact, James says, count it all joy whenever you are faced with trials of various kinds. And sometimes when people face trying circumstances, Christians in an attempt to save God's reputation and to save the person's faith, if you will, tell them that their suffering is not from God. Now, I understand we suffer sometimes because of our sin. That's true. And I can understand the sentiment of a person who's trying to encourage someone and doesn't want to make God appear uh, to be the one in whom evil originates. But we can actually do disservice to the reputation of God and to the person's faith by telling them that God does not bring about suffering. What am I saying? If we don't tell them that God rules over all the affairs of men, that means the good and the bad. That means the good and the bad. We're doing a disservice. For if we have a God that only brings good, but is not in control of the bad things that happens, are we really in good shape? I want you to think about that. If God only brings good, but he's not in control of the bad things that happen, are we in good shape? Are we on safe ground? And I want you to understand me clearly that I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that evil is in God or that it originates from him. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that God uses it for his purpose and for the good of his people. And I myself, like many people, when faced with grievous suffering, have asked the questions, where is God? What is he doing and why? And Peter answers all. All three here. He says, God is there. He is proving your faith and he is preparing you for glory. What does Peter compare the suffering process to? He compares it, if you look down at your text, to the refining process of gold. When gold is placed in the fire, it's heated up, it's liquefied, all the impurities are strained, removed, and proving its quality and displaying its character. In like fashion, the Lord uses fire uses the fire of pain and suffering to burn off the impurities of our faith. And in suffering, he brings us to our knees in dependence on him and not ourselves. And I want you to notice that the fire does not destroy the goal. It is the same with our faith. Trials don't destroy our faith. They actually strengthen it. That's why James said we can count it all joy. For when we are brought through the fire by the hand of the Almighty, our faith is increased and our hope is increased with vitality. 
I have here been dealing with people that have been experiencing suffering left and right. I've had friends who have had, who've come down with cancer just left and right the past couple years. I went to visit a man recently who's old enough to be my father. Got cancer, the Lord used it to bring him to faith. Now he has cancer again. And I'm thinking when I walk into this hospital room, what in the world am I going to tell this man? What can I tell him this afternoon? What can I tell him to encourage him, to strengthen his faith, to strengthen his hope? What can I do? The second go round at cancer. And I walked in there. As usual with people who are near to Jesus, you go in to deliver the encouragement and you walk out encouraged. You know what he said to me? He wouldn't let me talk. He said, the Lord used cancer to get my attention the first time. And I know he's using it again because he wants to do something else. I said, Lord, have mercy. I said to him, he said to me, he said, I keep telling my wife, cheer up. The worst thing that can happen to me is I'll go to heaven. (laughs) And she said, don't talk like that around me. She doesn't want to lose him right now. She wants him for a few more years. I understand how she feels. But that's a brother that understands that God is up to something in our suffering. He's up to something in our suffering. I talked to another individual here. And he said, you know, after the economic crisis, I lost almost everything. I said, you know what? The Lord used it to make me compassionate for other people. Compassionate. I, he developed compassion in me when I realized my great need. Man, I had compassion for others when they were in their time of need. I can go on and on and on. But lest I suffer you. Uh, Peter says that gold will perish. And he is right. Gold will perish. And it will pass away with the old created order. But faith will not perish. Faith will give way to vindication. That is our faith. The end goal of our faith will be seen at the return of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. That's, that's, our whole, that's the whole reason for our faith. To be with Jesus. To see him. That's the end goal. And he will be revealed. And we will see Jesus and be like him, John says. He will say that you are mine. We will inherit resurrected bodies. So says the Apostle Paul. Bodies too, by the way, that are imperishable. Unfading. Not subject to degradation. That comes with time. My goodness. I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I know I'm getting older because I'm losing hair. And I can't wait to get my resurrected body and see it just bloom back out. Listen, beloved, Peter says that the trials are preparing our faith for that great day. So we can rejoice now knowing that our suffering will come to an end and that day will come soon. In verses 8 and 9, as we, as we uh, near the end, Peter gives a summary of what he's already mentioned. 
Though we weren't physical witnesses to Christ like Peter, we've been made alive by the Holy Spirit who testifies that we are loved by and that we love Jesus. Okay? The same Holy Spirit causes us even now to walk by faith, not by sight. And the joy we have even in suffering is a fruit of the same Holy Spirit that causes us to both love and trust Jesus. And I want to ask you this morning, what are you dealing with? What has you grieved this morning? Is it an issue with health? Is it a physical ailment? Have you spent too many hours of your life uh, working and your children are estranged from you and they don't seem to like you? Does that grieve you this morning? Is it a rocky marriage? Have you been fighting a good fight in your marriage and you're just experiencing all sorts of emotional suffering? Is it a, is it a dispute over custody for children or grandchildren? What are the things that weigh you down this morning? What are the things that have your heart grieving? Have you lost someone you love? Do you feel lonely? Is that grieving you? We'll hear the comfort of the risen Lord. He says to you, I will not let any time go wasted. I understand that. None of your grieving, none of your pain, none of your trials, none of your suffering has fallen on a deaf God. None of it has fallen on an impotent God. None of it has fallen on a purposeless God. He says that you can rejoice for I am proving and not destroying your faith. I'm proving it. And your suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in you. Yes. That's what he's saying to us this morning. Do you know this Jesus and the promises that are reserved for those who trust in him? If not, I want to urge you. I want to urge you to trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation. Because Peter speaks of a day when Jesus will return. He speaks of a day when Jesus will return and it will be eternal glory for those who believe now. I want you to hear me clearly. It will be eternal glory for those who believe now. But eternal damnation for those who wait until later. But if you trust in Jesus now, if you trust in him today. The resurrection will mean life now and later. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That signals one day that we will be resurrected and the troubles of this life will come to an end. And we'll receive an inheritance imperishable indestructible, unfading. Seal this word to our hearts, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.